Are you a physician looking to take your own profitable medical expert witness practice to the next level? MedicalExpertWitness.com is the ultimate program to learn how to brand yourself as an expert witness and get yourself seen. Sure, building your reputation in the field from scratch has its challenges, but don't let them hold you back. MedicalExpertWitness.com understands what you're facing as they were once there too. In fact, 10 years ago, CEO Dr. Jordan Romano started his own consulting in the medical malpractice space. His experience has including providing expert witness testimony, reviewing medical records, and analyzing complex medical cases. Dr. Romano has become well-versed in the intricacies of medical malpractice law and has worked on cases for both plaintiffs and defendants in nearly every state in the U.S. And now, his company provides medical professionals with the tools and support they need to supercharge their career as a medical expert witness. Sounds great, doesn't it? Absolutely. Just imagine having the support you need to brand yourself as a medical expert witness too. Now that's powerful. So what are you waiting for? Visit medicalexpertwitness.com today and gain access to a mentor who can connect you with attorneys in need of your specialized knowledge, expand your network, find new cases, and watch your business thrive. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. So this is part of the real Hippocratic Oath, which, by the way, has no mention of do no harm. To hold my teacher in this art equal to my own parents, to make him partner in my livelihood when he is in need of money to share mine with him, to consider his family as my own brothers, and to teach them this art if they want to learn it without fee or indenture. Okay, so how did reciting a non-Hippocratic oath become a thing? And what are some of the other medical traditions that are getting in the way of progress? Find out now. Dr. Brian Elliott, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me today. Okay, let's first introduce the audience to you. You are, you're a captain in the Air Force. As of this recording, you're the Admin Chief of Internal Medicine at Wright State, and you're going to be doing a Palm Critical Care Fellowship at Walter Reed next year. While in residency, you also had a kid. And on top of all that, just to make us all feel like more of slackers, you wrote a book. You wrote White Coat Ways, A History of Medical Traditions and Their Battle with Progress. So holy cow, that is a ton of accomplishment in a very short period of time. What do I have to show for my time as a resident? I was an admin chief of otolaryngology and, you know, spent a lot of my time. I was like a semi-professional online dater. I think that's what occupied a lot of my time where you were busy doing things that actually made you, you know, advanced medicine and made you a better person. So first of all, how did you possibly accomplish all of that? Very precise time management and not a lot of sleep. That's pretty much the combo. And now that you're going to be finishing, oh, well, you're finishing your admin chief year, but going right into a pulmonary critical care fellowship. So it doesn't like you're going to, you're going to have any opportunity to catch up. Yeah, not too much time. I'll find some here and there, but yeah, just got to sneak in things when I can. Yeah, lots of caffeine, lots of caffeine. Okay. Lots of caffeine. So tell us about the origin of the book, because I know we've all had these thoughts in our training. The worst thing to continue doing something is because that's the way it's always been done, right? And that's what your book is. The, Medical traditions in their battle with progress. So we've all had these thoughts about, oh, why are we doing? Oh, why are we doing this? But you actually put pen to paper 
and turn it into a book. But just walk us through the origin story of your book. What was your thought process and how did you get there? I think you kind of sum it up and we all go through med school and we see all these things that are so dogmatic. And I remember sitting in my white coat ceremony and just being like, why? <laughs> Where did this come from? Why do we do this? And should we? Most importantly, Sir William Osler said, the greater the ignorance, the greater the dogmatism. So I really fed off that and was like, I want to know where these come from to really inform whether or not they should continue. And it didn't start out as I was going to write a book. I just wanted to research these things a little bit. I thought maybe this might make a good article. And then I just kept going deeper, deeper. And five years later, full book about it. Down the rabbit hole. Okay. So in, in the book, you go through the these seven specific traditions. So just for the audience, just a quick one-liner on each of the traditions that you go into. Yeah. So it starts with medicine as a calling, that subculture in medicine, that it's long work hours. And that really traces the history of residency, where that is the penultimate, you're in the hospital all day, and that's how we do things. I go through the physical exam and how that has become sort of routine more than rational. I go through the white coat, where that comes from, and some of the symbolism behind it. Cadaver lab, which is a long-standing medical tradition. Yes. Hospitals and the structure that we built them around in the United States. The MD degree, which goes through the MD degree, DO degrees, um, a little bit about chiropractic, and just kind of how the profession came to be its own sovereign profession in the United States. And then after that, it goes into the Hippocratic Oath, which is one of my favorite ones to talk about, which I'm sure we'll get to. Yes. So I definitely want to talk about that. So the white coat, the white coat, just give us the brief origin story of the white coat. And also, at what point do you think the white coat ceremony is going to be replaced by the fleece jacket ceremony? The white coat itself started way back. Previously, physicians in 18th century and before that would think that diseases spread from various means. And a lot of them were miasmatic theories, meaning that bad air, bad smells spread contagion. And one of the notorious physicians that proved that wrong was Joseph Lister. So in the mid-1800s, around 1864, he started publishing case series of proving antiseptic techniques and how he decreased the incidence of disease and post-operative infection by incorporating things like carbolic acid and other things that killed germs at the site of infection. That was the predecessor. And then the transition to the white coat really came when that spread through everything in the surgical room. So German physician by the name of Gustav Neuber in the 1870s said, okay, if keeping things antiseptic improves surgical rates, we need to make everything antiseptic. So he created the surgical gown. And the surgeons were really the ones who started to make the white coat a thing because the gown became white. So that way, if you soiled it, you could decide whether or not it was dirty enough where you had to stop. Whereas previously, they just wore smocks that just got caked with blood and pus, and they just built it up, built up a good surgical stink, as they said. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. you drop your knife, you drop your scalpel, you just brush it off. If that, and you're fine. Keep going. I like how my kids eat, right? Just wipe <laughs> your hands. You got a perfectly good napkin in front of you, but just wipe your hands, both sides, yep. on your shirt, wipe your mouth, on your sleeve, and then breakfast is done. Then you go to school. My toddler does the same thing, just uh, no problem. Yeah. The OR really spread it to the medical community, and that in the early 1900s is where it really took off. 
And so the white coat was something that you wore in the operating room so that you knew if you got something on you, you could see it because it was white. Yes, that was part of it. And originally started in Germany in the late 1800s. Pen is actually one of the first places that we see it in the OR in the Agnew Clinic, which is one of the famous paintings Yeah, in the late 1890s of Dr. Agnew performing surgery in the OR. And there was one from Massachusetts too, where they were performing surgery with a white coat. And then the surgeons spread it to the rest of the medical community. Got it. And now we just wear them, like as residents, we just wear them everywhere except the operating room. And they get some, you know, after wearing them long enough, they get not surgical stink, but just like floor stink on them before you have the opportunity to launder it. That's the irony behind it. Yeah. Is that it was invented to be antiseptic, and now, like you said, they're just dirty. Yeah, they're gross. They're not white. They're like yellow state. And we specifically don't wear them. Right. Okay. Okay. So maybe, you know, it makes sense to actually replace it with the fleece jacket, right? Because the fleece jacket can be easily laundered, right? You just, you get home, you throw it in the, you throw it in the wash, you can, you know, the white coat, it just never gets white again. I say the white coat's ironic, but at least it has the plus side of being professional. Patients like it. When they survey patients, patients find doctors who wear white coats more professional and more trustworthy. Yes. The fleece jacket loses on both fronts. It's got sleeves. It can pick up a bunch of debris through the hospital. People should launder it every day, but... They don't. Yeah. Patients don't find it as professional. So in a way, it loses on two fronts. Yeah. I have that debate in my head because I hate the white coat. I just hate it. And I hate wearing it. I don't find it comfortable. I don't find it looks like sharp, but I know that the patient's perspective on it. And so, you know, you try to be as professional as possible, but oh, my personal decision, it's the risks outweigh the benefits, so to say. Yeah. I'm a scrubs invest guy myself. The sleeves are what scrubs invest. And you are internal medicine. You're not emergency medicine. Do you wear cargo pants too? No. (laughs) <laughs> no, but when I go down there, they confuse me with all the EM residents. So it's yeah, <laughs> it's a tough one. It's funny. There's that uniform. Okay. So you said you wanted to talk about the Hippocratic Oath, right? And the origin of the Hi- Hippocratic Oath, which I find amazing because we all talk about the Hippocratic Oath. And as it turns out, it's not the Hippocratic Oath and it's not from it. But so like all these contradictions and yet we still, we call it and we give so much gravity to it. So I want you to blow everybody's mind right now and tell them like the true origin of, well, first, what was the real Hippocratic Oath? When people refer to the Hippocratic Oath, what they typically think they're referring to is the initial oath that we think was written potentially by Hippocrates around 400 BCE. The problem is he probably didn't write it. So while it's attributed to him around 400, 450 BCE, It's encompassed in this Hippocratic corpus, which is a collection of treatises, about 60, that people have attributed to Hippocrates at some point. But the problem is they span over such a long period of time, and they vary from treatise to treatise so much that probably wasn't written by one guy, potentially a school of thought, the Hippocratic school of healing. But even then, it still varies a lot in the practices that they did. So there's a lot of theories out there on who wrote what and what's contained in each and what each meaning is amongst the treatises. Now, the Hippocratic Oath one, there's a lot of debate about this. My personal feeling is that I don't think he wrote it because the timeline for it is essentially that the treatise is attributed to around 400, 450 BCE. Nobody mentions it until around 100 CE. 
And then the earliest excerpt we have is around 300 CE. And then the earliest full copy, the full oath that we think was potentially written by Hippocrates was around the 10th century CE. So you're telling me the father of medicine, the most prominent physician in the history of Western medicine, wrote something so profound that it was the creed for all physicians. And nobody talked about it for 500 years. Nobody wrote it down for 700, 800 years and was able to keep it. And the earliest copy we have was about 1,500 years later. So it makes sense that we like deified this person, Hippocrates, right? And then someone at some point wrote an oath. They wanted to give it more gravity. So they attributed it to someone who had already been deified. That makes total sense. You're like, you want to insert your ideas into popular culture? Don't say that they were yours. Say that they were someone that died 1,500 years ago that's been basically deified. So yeah, that I get that. Yeah, that's 100% correct. And even if they didn't create it entirely, they took his oath or a Hippocratic oath and injected just a little bit here and there to put forth their own beliefs. You know, the major tenet that everyone thinks about with the Hippocratic oath is first, do no harm. You don't think that came from Hippocrates even, but you do think it came from like ancient Greece, right? It was like the Pythagorean oath, so to say. Yeah. So that's the funny thing is, do no harm is not in Hippocratic Oath at all. Never appears what we consider the initial Hippocratic Oath. However, it does appear in a separate treatise in the Hippocratic Corpus called Of the Epidemics, where they say, in regards to medicine, help or at least do no harm. And funny enough, that actually is more likely written by Hippocrates than the actual oath. So I'm okay with people saying do no harm, and I think that makes sense and translates to contemporary ethical beliefs like yeah. beneficence and non-maleficence. But it's funny that it's actually more likely that he said that than the actual Hippocratic Oath. Got it. So then where did we get the current Hippocratic Oath? Like where does, and are we all taking the same oath when we go to at least MD medical school? Because I know the DOs have a different oath, right? That's like one of the few things that actually make our educations different at this point. Like they've converged. So where does the current oath come from? Yeah. That's the other big misconception is that all physicians say one Hippocratic oath. But in fact, it's multiple different oaths and it's actually a very recent tradition. So after Hippocrates or whoever wrote it put down the Hippocratic oath, nobody said it for thousands of years. And then it springs up around 1500 in Germany. And then not much after that, it springs up again around 1800 in France. And then it starts to get a little bit of traction then. But it wasn't until the 1900s in the United States that people really started to say it. By 1900, less than 20% of medical schools said a Hippocratic Oath. And then it started to catch on through the 1950s and World War II and all the terrible things that happened there. People said, wow, we need an ethical creed. We were physicians. They did terrible experiments and we need to have our own creed. And that's when it really took off. And it was the 1970s that you know, nearly 100% of medical schools started saying a Hippocratic Oath. And the Three big ones out there are, one, the initial Hippocratic Oath, two, the one that the World Medical Association came up with after World War II, which was the Declaration of Geneva, and then three, something called the Lasagna Oath, which is the best named, after Dr. Lasagna, who wrote this beautiful New York Times piece in the 1960s about how we're all saying these different oaths. I think we should have a contest to write these oaths, 
And you know what? This is just what my submission would be. And it's so well written. And that's definitely my favorite one. So we should start talking about the lasagna oath. Stop talking about the Hippocratic oath. Start talking about the lasagna oath. You know what? It would be so much more. That's amazing. I think we should really put a push on social media with both of my followers to start putting it out there. Hashtag lasagna oath. And then we'll push to get it out there, push it to more prominence. So maybe there can be some consistency there. Hashtag lasagna oath. Get it out there. Okay, so first we have to look up what the lasagna oath is and then we'll read it. But like, do you have any part of the real original Hippocratic oath at your, you know, I don't want to put you in, in a position where you have to flip through your book to find it. But like, when you read it, it is so preposterous to think like, this is what we're telling people we're, we're taking. In fact, this is what the actual Hippocratic oath is. I can come up with a few paraphrases of what the original Hippocratic oath says. It says things like, don't perform urologic surgery. Don't perform surgery if you're cutting for stone is how they describe it, which is commonly attributed to urologic surgery. Very debatable on that point. Financially back your teachers. So make sure you're paying your professors well. It speaks quite a bit about abortion and not performing a specific type of abortion that was potentially practiced back then. And then they talk about... Wait, were they pro or against? They were against. Against? In the Hippocratic okay. Oath. Ancient Greece. Okay. Yes. Well, I wouldn't say in ancient Greece, because actually, in other parts of the Hippocratic Corpus, they performed abortions. Okay. So just not this specific part in time of ancient Greece. Yes. Not all yes. of ancient Greece. Okay. And then not giving a poison to incite death, which also has various interpretations. So don't kill people. Okay. Oh, and, and don't tell secrets. Don't tell your patient secrets, or just don't tell any secrets. No, don't tell any secrets. No secrets. They specifically say not just your patient's secrets, but anyone's secrets. <laughs> Pay your teachers, don't tell secrets, and don't perform urologic surgery. Very specific and not necessarily what we think. So why take an oath at all? Like, why do we even take an oath? Is it because we want to have some common agreed upon guidelines on like what defines a physician? You know, you're questioning why we, this is the whole book. Why do we even do any of these things? So my question is, why do we even take an oath? I think that's a good question. And I think the misconception with my book is that people think that I'm against all these traditions and that's not the case. I just want to explain them so that they're better informed to implement them correctly because oaths matter. When they survey physicians, 90% of doctors say that an oath impacts the way that they practice medicine, which is terrifying if you know what the original Hippocratic Oath says. One specialty is just gone. Gone. Urology, gone. <laughs> Sorry, urology. Yeah. But if we have a good oath that we can agree on, having a set of values that we codify in an oath that is meaningful to people and is the public relationship that we have with patients too, that they know that all physicians should abide by an ethical creed. I think that that's extremely helpful. It's just that we should do it correctly with a modern oath. Intentionally, it should be very... Although I do think that we all take this like neo-Hippocratic oath where like I remember in medical school, they told us like, this is not the Hippocratic oath. We made some liberal changes to make it a more modern oath. And so whatever it was that we said, which, you know, at this point it was 2006. So it was a long time ago. I don't remember, but they made some modern changes. And I'm sure most medical schools, especially since the original is, how often should we update this thing? Like this is the type of thing where, you know, every few years we should be assessing to make sure that it is consistent with our current ethics and values and capabilities, right? Like medicine's 
constantly evolving. And the further into the future we get, the more rapidly it evolves. So you're right. You know, everything should be with intention. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do it, but it doesn't mean we, we should. Does the neo-Hippocratic oath, the ones that we take, does it have any legal significance? Because, you know, I remember there's some, there was some like case law here now because of the Hippocratic oath. Yeah, it comes up a scary amount, the original Hippocratic oath in the courtroom. So the most notable and the most commonly discussed one, especially now, is when it came up in Roe v. Wade. So when Roe v. Wade happened, it was actually one of the justices presiding on the case who said to the attorneys, well, hey, what about the Hippocratic Oath? Doesn't that speak to abortion? Isn't that the ethical creed of physicians? Should we be talking about that? And in fact, Justice Blackman, who was the one who brought it up, he wasn't even satisfied with what the attorney said. So he goes and he goes to Mayo Clinic Library and he researches there for weeks and he reads through some of the things that I discussed, and he actually read through Ludwig Edelston's work, who was a prominent scholar on the Hippocratic Oath. And Edelston's assertion is that it was written by the Pythagoreans, like from the Pythagorean theorem, which is kind of like a uh, religious cult, I guess you could say, is one of the assertions. But he felt that it wasn't written by Hippocrates. And it's so antiquated and has all these values that are not modernized that it shouldn't relate to this case at all. And I think that was the correct decision is that regardless of how you feel about the topic, it should not make its way to the Supreme Court or really any modern court. But it does keep coming up, especially now with Dobbs. It came up as an amicus brief by one of the filings in the recent case that was all over the news with Mifepristone, the plaintiffs were actually the Society of Hippocratic Physicians, people who go back all the way to uh, 400 BCE and talk about those values. And Their values have not evolved, clearly, because they were anti, as you said, there was this one specific period of time where in ancient Greece, they were anti-abortion. And so they've taken upon themselves to continue the work of those, that very narrow period of time in a very, yeah. So- Makes sense. We should have these ethical guideposts that can help us in our decision making, that can help us when we, you know, aren't sure what the right thing to do is. We, we you know, we can rely on these, these ethical pillars, but there's, they're not legal. They're not legally binding. The oaths aren't legally binding. They're just guidelines. Especially not the old ones. They shouldn't even be guidelines. Yes. Yeah. The new ones, much more reasonable. I mean, if you're going to, take the ethical values of Hippocratic physicians, you should be bloodletting and talking about the humors too, because medicine has changed a lot in the last 2,500 years. Yeah, but it also hasn't changed that much. And I'm sure there are some people advocating that are talking about humors and selling their supplements and bloodletting and the rest. How far is How far away is cupping from bloodletting? Like you're not actually letting the blood out, but you're just bringing it closer to the surface. I feel like cupping and bloodletting, there's some common thread there. If I've offended you, good. Well, not you, Frank. <laughs> listen. So, okay. Was there anything that didn't make the book that you were like, oh, if I just had a little more time, which you don't, just had a little more time on my hands, you know, I could take a deeper dive into this, or maybe like it's going to be in the sequel. We all know the sequel's better than the first. So is there anything that didn't make the cut that you want to tell us about? I did write a whole chapter on 
the clinic because I wrote about hospitals and how that system came out and how hospitals became nonprofit organizations. And maybe we should think about that a little bit more. But I talk, talked about the clinic too and how that came to be as a standalone, but also incorporated in the healthcare system. And unfortunately, that didn't make it. But it was very interesting reading some of the historical precedents to clinics and how everyone did not like clinic. It was just kind of something you had to do to work in the hospital. It was very fascinating. That's really interesting because as a surgery resident, you know, in otolaryngology, everyone loves being in the operating room and nobody wants to do office hours. So it seems like to some degree, things have, the more they change, the more they stay the same. So when they first started with office hours, and by the way, in private practice, we don't call it clinic, we call it office hours. So during office dur or clinic, so nobody liked it. That's what you're saying? Yeah, they called it the stepchild of healthcare. Everyone just wanted to work the inpatient service. And they were just like, this is what you got to do. Mostly, a lot of other rings were surgical too. So I think that actually makes sense. Is they did not have nice things to say about it. Interesting. Okay. All right. So let's talk about the birth of the modern medical school, right? The MD medical school. Because Abraham Flexner sounds like quite the personality. And when you look at it from a certain way, it, you know, as much as we've kind of deified him and the Flexner Report, and they're cutting out all these bad medical schools. In reality, what he created was like a cartel, right? Like we are creating the modern medical school and you can either do it our way and pay homage to us and pay us, actually pay us, so you can be part of this modern medical society or we're gonna, you're going to get cut. You're either with us or you're out, which in some ways sounds like a cartel. So is that a correct assessment? It's fair. <laughs> I wouldn't even say just in medical education, too. At the same time, at the turn of the 20th century, the AMA grew exponentially. The number of med medical members was 10 times from like 1890 to 1900. And with all that lobbying power, all the laws came with it, too, for medical practice. And it was similar. They had good intentions and bringing everyone together to the same standards was good for medicine as a whole, but it also was conveniently supplying them with a lot of power. Okay. What, can you tell us anything about like what was going on at the time politically or, you know, was there a lot of pushback against this or, you know, did he manage to consolidate power pretty quickly and easily? And that was kind of how it worked. Yeah. Well, you kind of got to understand the landscape of medicine in the 1800s and the landscape was chaotic. So 20% of providers or about that were non-traditional medical doctors. So this was people like eclectics, homeopaths, magnetic medicine. There were Thompsonian sects. There were like a ton of different sects of medicine. No, it sounds like now. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. A little bit similar. We have a lot more laws now though. Back then there were no laws. It was, yeah, it was the wild west, literally the wild west. Yeah. And even among the MD physicians, you had people like Sir William Osler and Halstead who were just these eminent physicians that were notorious for being amazing. And then you had a bunch of people who went to a medical school, graduated in like a year or two and were like, yeah, I can practice medicine. Or even just did a short apprenticeship and just started practicing medicine because there were no licensure requirements. Right. As long as you pay your, your teacher according to the Hippocratic Oath, right? Got it. Exactly. <laughs> And medical schools knew this, so they really just wanted to solicit tuition payments. So anyone could start a medical school. They would prop these up, have terrible resources for the students. 
The libraries had no books. They barely had any cadavers for dissection. And as long as you could pay tuition, you were going to be a doctor. So they just grew and grew into the 400s. And then 1910 comes around and they say, we need to thin the herd. Not only from alternative practitioners, but also amongst the MDs, we need to thin it to just the best MDs. So Flexner came around, toured the entire country, visited 150-some medical schools, came away from it and said, I want there to be these 30 medical schools. These are the best ones. Get rid of everyone else. And they said, whoa, 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 can't cut it that much. But they met somewhere in the middle, drastically cut it down to the best medical schools. Okay, fine. 36. <laughs> little negotiating. <laughs> Actually, no, my cousin runs this one. Could you make it 38? Okay, great. Fine. 38. Deal. Okay, deal. Yeah, these are how decisions are made. <laughs> Laws and sausages. Then what happened to the rest of those? They just evaporated? Pretty much. I wouldn't say that they all initially evaporated. That certainly took out a bunch of them. Some of them... So even before this, they started to incorporate some laws state by state that said, in order to be a medical school, you have to do this. You have to have cadaver lab. They have to have this much education. And the for-profit medical schools that were just standing up places to solicit a bunch of tuition, they started to not be able to keep up as much. So the ones that couldn't keep up started to fade away. The ones that felt riskier just started faking things and just kind of over-exaggerating how many resources they have. They're like, we got a couple books. That's probably good for like 150 students. And then it was when Flexner came around, took stock of everyone and said, no, 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 this is inadequate. That took out the last of them. I just picture a guy with like, I don't know why he looks like Mr. Peanut, but like a top hat and a cane and a monocle and a white glove and like just running his finger along the surface, like in the cadaver lab and looking at his finger and being and just shaking his head. And then that school got the axe. But it would clearly, I mean, yes, it was a bit of a cartel, but at the same time, it makes sense. You have to have standards. It makes sense to have standards. And so establishing what consistent standards we want in order to be able to define someone as a physician, not a doctor, that's something else, right? But as a physician, that does make sense. Yeah. And translated to today, it's the same thing. We, there's a reason that we have specific standards is because to be in this profession, you should be able to do certain things. And it's important that we have rigorous values for that. Before we close, what is one just outrageous, preposterous thing that you found in your research that either we used to do and no longer do, but really held on to it for too long? Or, you know, continue to do now. And you're like, guys, the history of this is just preposterous, right? We don't want to go into one of your, the entire, you know, seven traditions. We're not going to go into a whole chapter, but just one of the most preposterous things that you identified in your research. Yeah, there, there was one thing that I encountered and I was like, this is too good. It's tangentially related, but I have to include this because it's the best story I've ever read in the history of medicine. And that's the story of John Brinkley, who was at one of those alternative providers that we were talking about. And he liked to treat low libido. He talked about a guy, no pep, flat tire, as he called it. And he said, I have the perfect fix for you. Why don't I take these goat testicles and implant them in you? Where did he implant them? I believe it was... Like in your scrotum? All right. Yeah. Zip it open, sew it up. All right. Put some <laughs> goat testicles in there. Okay. Okay. What happened? Well, long story short... 
the patient liked it. The first patient liked it. Or at least he said he described it as success. He described it as success. How do you not end up with sepsis and death in that situation? (laughs) You put goat testicles in your scrotum and you don't just immediately get septic and die. How does that? Was it like a magic trick? He like opened the guy's scrotum, like, you know, jiggled it around a little bit and sewed it closed and just told the guy that he put goat testicles in there. And the guy's like, listen, I don't want to tell all my friends that he tricked me, so I'm going to tell him how awesome it is. Well, I mean, he operated intoxicated a lot, so maybe some of the alcohol was used as an antiseptic. It's tough to say, but I did not encounter any episodes of the sepsis that he wrote about. Of course, he did not document his failure. This was not peer-reviewed literature. There was no clearly no IRB at the time. Okay, so we can't take him as our own because he was one of those alternative providers. Yes, he did get a lot of wrongful death lawsuits that eventually came out, though. Okay. Did he have a name for this procedure? I don't know that he... I don't remember reading a specific name that he called it. Okay. So we're going to have a contest. We're going to have a contest. This is my first podcast contest, and I want people to email me, and I will read them the best name for the goat testicle implantation for low libido. What is the name of this surgery? That's the contest. I don't know what you're going to win. Maybe just reading your name on the air, or if you want, I won't read your name on the air because it might, you know, embarrass you that you came up with a great name for goat testicle implantation. But okay, amazing. So where can we find you online and where can we find White Coat Ways, a history of medical traditions in their battle with progress? White Coat Ways is pretty much everywhere on Amazon, Barnes & Noble Online, Audible. It's in a lot of ebook stores. And then I'm mostly on Twitter. So Twitter is definitely my sphere to contact me. What's your at? Brian Elliott, MD1. Whoever took that Brian Elliott MD. I know. I know. Drives me crazy every time I see it. (laughs) All right. Well, Brian Elliott won. Thanks so much for being on the podcast and your contributions to medicine. And good luck getting some sleep during that pulmonary critical care fellowship. All right. Thanks so much for having me. Ready to take the first step in achieving your medical expert witness goals? Book a free 30-minute call and grow your own profitable medical expert witness practice. Visit medicalexpertwitness.com and start making a difference in the legal field with your medical expertise today. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. You listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please share it or like it or comment on a social media post or write us a five-star review, something. It would really help me out. And maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too. The views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other. Even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like I'm talking directly to you, this is not a doctor-patient relationship and this is not medical advice or financial advice or really any advice. Thank us again for listening to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.